Welcome to our Early Years Mental Health and Wellbeing podcast with me, Kate Moxley, and the wonderful Kerry Payne, EYFS for me. Today, we are going to be talking about practitioners and the type of practitioners that we were um, as we started out in our early years career where we are now and we are going to apply that and kind of reflect on as we think about returning to work or for those people that have been at work throughout this whole coronavirus experience and continued as, as kind of key workers what we'll be talking about and thinking about is um, we're going to be expecting even more from our teams or even more from ourselves and sometimes and I use this this phrase we expect stop expecting you from other people so we're going to explore that in a little bit more detail and what that kind of might be like so welcome Kerry thanks for joining me again yeah, you're very welcome. I really liked the way you um, referred to the pandemic as an experience, it, to lock, it locked down as an experience rather than the pandemic. You, like you took the drama out of it, which is oh, nice. Thank you. Well, I reflect, you know, I use experience a lot for all, uh, all sorts of different things. And in our, I think it was our first podcast when we were talking about suffering and the language and terminology that we use. And I don't realise actually just how much I do it. I didn't even realise I've done it then when you just mentioned. It was nice. It was nice to hear it framed in a, in a non-dramatic, sensationalist way. Like it, it's, it's an experience that we're all going through. So I don't know. Subtle, subtle things make a difference, don't they? Absolutely. I saw a wonderful post on Facebook today and it was about, it, again, it was about the language that we use in terminology, but with regard to this experience. So lockdown, um, you know, lockdown actually sounds so dramatic. And, and in the beginning, it felt almost quite thrilling to be like, we're in lockdown. Whereas now it's like, actually, if we're constantly repeating that to our children, that might not always be so healthy. So thinking of different ways in which we can talk about this whole experience. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think that's really important. So go on then, do the date on you as a practitioner. Well, I, so this started by me having this kind of brainwave the other day when I was drying my hair and I sent you a voice note saying, I've got a, a, an interesting idea. You know, the practitioner that I was at 20 is not the practitioner I am now at the grand old age of 40. And how I worded it to you in the podcast in my voice note was you know did I phone in sick on a Monday morning because I wanted to stay in bed all day with my boyfriend yes absolutely <laughs> I did right I'm sure there are not many 20 year olds uh, alive that haven't done something similar okay mm. would I have done that at 35 I wish no <laughs> no <laughs> no I wouldn't do that at 35 I've grown I've developed I've changed and, um, you know, I've got different, not only personal, but different professional priorities as well. Yeah. And sometimes, and then I suppose what I was thinking about is as a manager, previously, I had expectations of my team, but they were those expectations that were mine. And how could I expect myself from somebody else when I had maybe another 10 or 15 years, not, not from a perspective that I know more because I don't necessarily think that, but my experiences were different. And it goes back to that, our own, we have our own window of the world and the settings that I've worked in and the roles that I've done over my career have shaped the practitioner that I am. So, you know, the good experiences, the bad experiences, you know, so I've worked 
just to give an, um, you know, some background. So I left school at 16, went straight into doing my MVQ level two and three. And I worked four days in a nursery for the grand sum of 45 pounds a week and went to college one day a week. And um, I've been a nanny, I've been a childminder, I've worked in a variety of different PVI settings from baby room, room leader, deputy manager, manager, I've been a teaching assistant, you know, I clearly like to get around a bit. So mm. all of those experiences have, you know, shaped me and I got things wrong and I made mistakes and, you know, all sorts of things in terms of relationships with other staff. Mm. So that is kind of where the whole idea has kind of come from. So I've given you such a big of a bit of a brain dump there of information. Yeah. What, what kind of a practitioner were you like then? Did I even answer your question? But you, <laughs> um, well, I, th I think from what you've said, you were, you were a typical progressive practitioner. What we see a lot in early years is that people do look at that kind of trajectory of, of, you know, I'm going from in, in the room and then I want to kind of do those, almost like leap hops to different positions. Cause I do think, you know, as, as much as you can get broad experiences in the early years, you should definitely take, take them on. Um, what type of practitioner was I? Um, I was good. I, I'm good with children. I think I'm naturally very, very good with children. I think that I'm confident about the relationships and the bonds that I can build with children. Um, I, I feel very affectionate towards them. I'm interested in them but actually keeping me in the room was a big issue. I felt very, very contained. The fact that you had to be in ratio, that you were based in one room all day, and you might not all, I didn't always have direct access to the outdoors. Um, and I felt very suffocated. So when I was actually in the room, I was very, very good. But I always knew from the very early days that I wanted to, to do something that, engaged my theoretical brain I suppose a bit more so um and and what my mum and sister who were my managers at the time they were like you're great with children but you we can't keep you in the room because you're always off you know skiving and floating about um, and then I went into management and I hated that I hated that more than life itself because I just didn't have the skills um and then I went into consultancy and fell madly in love with that. So I'm trying to think what type of practitioner was I? I think I've just given like the, the bad CV actually is that I was essentially naughty. I was always getting into trouble for not wearing the right uniform. Like I, I what I've noticed about myself is I, I am, I do push boundaries and I don't like to be told what to do. So when I was, um, when I was a practitioner, I hated that a manager could say, right, can you go and cover lunches? Can you do that? I hated that. I hated being controlled. Um, and I think that comes back to what we were talking about in the previous podcast is that I'm quite creative and I'm quite floaty. So, um, so I think in a nursery, I am the one that's coming up with the ideas, designing amazing activities. I think I'm the fun one, I suppose, but I'm not, I'm not a routine-based practitioner at all. The more that we speak, the more I feel like we're so similar because I would, I would say, kind of describe myself in a similar way. And I'll pick up some of your points in a second. So I say that, you know, you can't taught how to be an early years practitioner can't be I can't even speak yeah you can't you can't be taught how to be an early years practitioner in terms of you've either got that little bit of magic inside you and that magic is that magic that you 
notice children when they walk into the room you make eye contact with them you see them you hear them you listen to them and that is just I think intrinsically there and exists within you and you know my daughter's 14 now but she'll say stop talking to children because you know you'll go places and children will look at you babies toddlers I'll end up speaking to children and and you know and she's like will you just stop speaking to children and we you know and that's just who you are you notice them and they notice you and for me it was something that I was always good at but it wasn't something I ever thought about about as a career so my mum was a childminder when I my parents divorced when I was 11 and she stayed at home and she was a childminder with us so we always had children in the house always and it was wonderful but when I left school and I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. And I am one of those, um, you know, much talked about practitioners that left school with no qualifications, didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. But I knew that I was good with children and my mum knew that too. And that was kind of how I, you know, fell into what I was doing. Um, but did I then, even when I was doing my qualifications and decided to then go off to London and become a nanny, did I know that this was what my career and my whole life was going to be about children? No. I didn't, I don't think I had that foresight to think this is what my future is going to be. And I think sometimes we expect, we, we expect that of, you know, of, of younger practitioners or where do you want this to go? And when I, when I was that age, it was like, oh, do I want to own a nursery? Or like, cause that was, where do you go? Do you know what I mean? That, um, something that happened to me and I actually believe that it's this conversation with this particular person very early on in my career that led to me staying very much within the early years I my best friend was a teacher um and he I went round to his house one night and we were talking about I was working in an nursery I was studying for my early years professional status and he said to me you're wasted in the early years you need to go and do your teacher training and I was like, what do you mean I'm wasted? And he was like, you need to go and work in an actual school where you can actually teach because, you know, we all, we all know what nursery and early years is. And I was like, hang on a second, aren't you a, aren't you a teacher in a school that has an early years provision? I said, how can you not be invested in that part of your school? Mm-hmm. And we fell out for about three months because I thought, you cheeky little get. And I just thought, is, is that really the attitude that people have about people in the early years, that they're wasted and that if they choose to stay there, then they're less than. And sadly, I do think that that's something we still battle today. And I actively then thought, I'm not doing, I'm not going into a school. I'm not going to be a, a qualified teacher. I've got no interest in it because this is where it's at. And I, you know, when you're around children, it, it surprised me that I liked them actually, because I, I didn't intend to go into early years. I, but I just found them so interesting. I find children fascinating. Like, and people are always surprised when I say my favorite age group is not to two. Baby development to me is just, it just blows my mind. When people say babies don't do anything, I, I'm just like, you're missing out on actually something that is, is incredibly like miraculous. Like the way babies develop is just insane to me. So fascinating. It makes me, I can remember my first week going into a private day nursery at like 16 and the room leader saying to me, can you check if those babies need their nappies changing? Well, I didn't know what she meant. 
I didn't know that if you felt a nappy, you would know whether it was wet or not. I, yeah. I didn't know what I was like. Well, what do you do? I mean, even though mum, we had children all around the house. Of course, I never changed the the, the children's nappies here. My mum, you know, minded for, and I, I didn't even know what on earth it meant. But I, I think you know, I very soon just enjoyed being in that role. Um, you know, those relationships with babies, children, parents, especially staff, like the whole thing that kind of comes together. What I thought was interesting, which I want to go back and pick you up on is about, you know, not being in the room, because actually we know ratios and, and like kind of thinking about staff staying in the room. And a lot of times that is something you're like, oh, you know, Brenda's out the room again. Or oh, I've noticed, um, you know, Pauline's been out that baby room 16 times this morning. It's only 8.23. <laughs> Stuff like that. But, but sometimes there might be a reason for it. Like, you know. Oh, um, God, I remember I had um, a colleague, Claire. I still speak to her now. We, were, we ran a baby room together. We had just an absolute ball we just we looked after the babies to a high level of care but we just took the piss out of each other all day long and she started if I would go out the room she would do that um you know when cowboys have the rope so she would do like <laughs> to catch me and she'd be like will you get back in this bloody room and she's like oh Kerry's doing a planning again Kerry's got to go and set something up um, and and what we managed to do because it did annoy yeah we managed to develop some humor within that um, and I do think that that relates back to just being human. Nobody likes to be contained and controlled. I think it comes back to me ADHD, but I always use it now as an example of stressed children and how their stress is often exacerbated when we try to enforce control or containment on them in a negative way. Because if you're a child that can't communicate that you feel trapped or stressed, and then they can't go anywhere. They can't get out the room. They can't go and have a walk. They can't go and chill out or, you know, go and have a chat with a friend because we're, we're putting all this control on the child. And if we feel that as an adult with the, the level of executive function that we have, how, how can, how might the child feel when that, feel when that happens? Um, and I always use that as like a powerful kind of example that ratios and being trapped in rooms because it can sometimes feel that way it is tough isn't it? it i hated it i hated thinking i am in this room for 10 hours and that's the other problem the yeah. shift patterns of earliest practitioners is obscene i just think it being expected to care give for 10 hours straight it's just to me it just is shocking that we we exist in a framework where that level of caregiving is expected and then we question why there's a mental health crisis. Well, indeed. And, and you know, if we think about the timings, you know, 7.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning till sometimes 6 or 7 at night. And lots of times, you know, I did this shift myself. I worked 40 hours over four days to get one day off a week. And, you know, it is exhausting and you give and give and give. So, you know, we talked previously before and I kind of said it was a, like a bit of a breath of fresh air when you said it you know nobody's perfect and you know being able to say actually I'm not an outdoor person I don't really like going outside that's how we talked about it in the previous podcast mm. it's okay to say the certain things about our practice that we don't enjoy doing but also being realistic about what that means um but you know I think going back to kind of where we find ourselves in this current day and thinking and planning about moving to a future where we're returning to our settings um, you know we are going to be feeling under a lot of pressure under a lot of stress and like one of the big things that 
we will kind of all be talking about is, you know, really being able to establish as a team again. I've been talking about it as like team togetherness. We just kind of need to, you know, identify our kind of sense of purpose again, remind ourselves of, you know, our values and our beliefs. And I think if we get too sidetracked on what other people are doing and what we're hearing from other settings or, you know, all of the other kind of stuff that's going around at the moment, and it will be unhealthy and, and, and unhelpful. But I think kind of to help us as we go back, it's thinking that every single one of us is different. So even if we've got the same sh shared sense of purpose, the same core values, we're all going to be bringing something back differently um, to the to the workplace. So as the manager, however much experience you've got, you're in a different position to um, other members of the team. And so it's like, how can we use that mindset or that thought process to take better care of ourselves yeah it's and again it's it's such a difficult question or it's a diff, difficult reflection point um and i have been thinking about the staff are going to come back together and it's almost like they're getting to know each other again or they're getting to know a new version of each other because we're all changed from lockdown and i think something that we really have to recognize throughout this is that this so I had a personal situation just a few days ago. Somebody was rude to me via email um, and they kind of was like, you know, I, I think you need to understand my situation. And I had this real like acute moment of going, this pandemic is happening to all of us. So when you're being rude to me or when you're being like just unprofessional, like you don't know what's going on behind the scenes and just because you see me in a position of power it doesn't mean that I am less human than you and I really really got upset you know when you go into that like I got Nick and I was like this has happened and I can't work it out why is this person being mean to me I'm vulnerable as well and I think for educators who are going to be putting all this information into their managers and leaders laps of what are you doing to ensure safe transition what are you doing how are you like remember that your manager your leader is as human as you are they will have their own set of vulnerabilities they will have their own health and general anxieties and they will have the same intentions as you which is to ensure the smoothest of transitions and i think it's dead easy to dump everything on managers isn't it and go they're not doing it good enough but actually they're in such an impossible situation and i said on a, a, a instagram live the other day write a list of expectations no matter what level you you are at and more than half them during this transition because yeah. this is a traumatic experience we are all going to be changed and it's not all going to be for the good i think many of us have, have talked about a transformational change to the early years after this i think the reality is that there may be transformational elements but there's going to be some long-term long-term damage from this experience and we've got to we've got to as educators when we're back in those settings we've got to look at what our tolerance levels are for each other because i i've noticed i think i'd said a few weeks ago i've noticed people's anger or people's um, tolerance to temper has definitely decreased people are getting angry much quicker people are getting stressed much quicker and that's going to really impact when we're out in the settings and children are going to feed off that anxiety as well and so we've got to not say don't be angry and don't have a temper we've just got to have such a, a an awareness of it and that comes back down to that emotional intelligence i don't know if i went off on a tangent there my husband walked past and started talking so it threw me off 
No, so I'll, I'll, what it made me think about was I did um, a video interview last week with Vanessa Dooley, Greg Bottrell and so Sonia Mainstone Cotton. And she was talking about um, a lady called Louise Bomba, I think she said her name was. And she um, worked with children on attachment and grief and loss. But what she was talking about and advocating for professionals when they're looking at going back to work was was having the opportunity to spend some time as a team before you reopen to the children. And she was saying at least a week. And we were saying, you know, realistically that, that, you know, that might not happen. But I think it's setting that kind of expectations, being able to adjust, uh, you know, uh, with things. So I can remember being employed as a deputy manager for a really large 100 and I think it was 120 place nursery, um, you know, about 15 years ago and there was a manager and another deputy and I was supernumerary and this nursery had been going through some kind of you know ups and downs it had changed owners and I think that you know they wanted to change some of the practice and so I went in with all my enthusiasm and my passion but of course you know all of this change was not um, well received by, by, by the team. They'd all worked together for a really long time and they couldn't understand what was wrong, even though, you know, they knew maybe some things needed to adjust. And I can remember at the time, always coming home, being so upset. I just like, I always seemed to get it wrong. I always seemed to alienate the team. Um, you know, I didn't have a great relationship with a lot of the people that I was, you know, managing. And I used to feel, come home sometimes and cry and just be like, but can't they see I'm trying to do what's best for the children. I just want the children to get the best experiences and I'm just trying to do this. And now I look back on this at the time and I think there was no wonder that we didn't see or hit it off or that I was kind of struggling and failing because just because I wanted what was best for the children, I was assuming that they didn't want what was best, but they did, but just in their own way. And our experiences of what that best was um, was completely different. Does that make any sense? It makes perfect sense. And I'm, I'm just kind of reflecting in the moment on that because this is something, it's a bit of a bugbear for me and I've not quite, I've not quite delved enough into my own thinking, but I, and this obviously is, is no criticism to the approach that you maybe took, I remember as a practitioner, and I have this now, I had this when I was a local authority employee, actually, and, and probably in my current employment, when somebody says to you, my, my main priority is the children, or my main priority is the, is the students, or my main priority is the nursery settings, it omits you as a human, and what? you can't help but go, but what about me? And what research tells us endlessly and continuously, particularly in our adult-child interactions, is that the best for the children is actually targeting the adults, increasing their capacity and emotional intelligence, having kindness and empathy for them, understanding their self-regulation skills. And, and I, I'm going to be dead honest, there are, are situations that I see where I see, you know, child um, specialists and advocates, and they they advocate the child but at the expense of the adults around those children and it drives me insane because it's like why would you talk about what children need without attaching that to what adults need because I know as a practitioner I do my best 
when somebody is holistic in their approach and goes, actually, this child at the center, the child is at the center, but it's those, it's those ecological aspects, isn't it? It's the child is in the center, but the attachment figures, the key people, the community, the relatives, they all wrap around that. If we look after them people as well, that's gonna have such a huge impact on the child. And I, I did a post yesterday, I don't know if you saw it, about the um, no touch policies and hugging. Um, if we say to the, the educator or the practitioner, you must do this because the child's interest must be at the heart of everything you do. And we do that at the expense of the adult. The adult is then going to engage in reluctant practices and it's not going to be meaningful. And I would rather have a practitioner that I've cared for and nurtured and made them stronger to be a, a caregiver and an educator than to completely wipe out their needs. And it, it's it really bugs me. I, I don't know if you picked up on it, but it really drives me mad that I'm like, the educators have to be cared for as well. I'm sorry, I went off on a, a rant, but it, it annoys me. But no, I'm with you. And I think, I think it goes back to, you know, none of us are perfect. So every day is a learning day. So in the roles that we do, you know, as consultants and trainers, you know, I learn from the people that I meet. I mean, I think I've already mentioned, you know, in the, in the, the last nine weeks, my professional development, having conversations like this with practitioners, with so many people, it is developed or it's constantly developing and and so i suppose some of the work i do does reflect back on mistakes that i made you know i don't pretend to be a perfect uh, perfect person by any means and i suppose you know i did make mistakes i did i always have um you know the most amazing practice consistently for the last 24 years you know no i probably i probably didn't so sometimes when i suppose what we're talking about is when we compare ourselves to other people or when we expect stuff from other people we expect the very best from them but all of the good bits of ourselves we does that, i don't know if i'm explaining it right yeah completely yeah so it's almost again it's like you um almost separate yourself in half and go my bad bits um like you know i'm allowed my bad bits but you're not allowed mine or your bad bits can yeah. you be all my good bits and you then all my good bits and everything else and actually that's so it just doesn't it just absolutely doesn't work like that and so like you just said it's that who this person is knowing our teams individually being able to support and recognize um, what's going on for that person i mean you know some of the other podcasts that i've recorded um i spoke with um two managers from monkey puzzle day nurseries rachel and francesca francesca was due to get married during this um, in may um and you know she's going through all of these different experiences while supporting her team and when we go back and that's the other thing is every person i've spoke to throughout this whole situation although we're you know that whole you know we're in the same storm but different boats that is so true because every person i've spoke to their circumstance is entirely different so it's so complicated and so intricate all of the different things we've experienced when we go back and um, you know everyone has gone through something tough and so that it's not helpful to be like oh just suck it up or you know we're all going through bad stuff it's like we're all going bad through bad stuff we've all had losses we're all grieving stuff we're all finding stuff hard or we're worried tell me what yours is mm. tell me how we can work together and support each other yeah and i think um a lesson that i have learned especially in my work in local authority i remember somebody once saying to me kerry when you feel something, you take up the entire emotional space of everybody else. And I was like, wow, that is pretty harsh. 
But what she was actually trying to say to me is that if somebody shares an experience, allow their, allow that to be their experience. So I've really had to train myself out of being that human that when somebody goes, I'm dead stressed, well, I'm more stressed, I'm really tired, well, I'm really tired. I did this today, well, I did 10 more things than you. And and um, it was the, the best kind of advice that I was given that allow people to experience their unique feelings and, um, you know, their, their experiences are entirely their own. They're not for you to steal or to interfere in or to bombard. Um, and, and there's such a big thing around emotional space. And what usually happens is it becomes a seesaw, doesn't it? So sometimes they might need a little bit more emotional space and then you might calibrate and then calibrate, is that the right word? And then you might, you, like, you've got to allow that spaces are gonna be taken in different, in different measures and that is okay, but don't steal people's emotion. I really, I'm terrible for it. Well, I'm more tired because I've done more than you. <laughs> like, yeah, well, do you know more? what's really funny? I was listening to, um, I'm now a convert to Radio 2. Oh, now yes. I've turned 40 and um, I will admit to listening to Michael Ball on a Sunday morning and somebody phoned up and they were talking about how their dog had passed away and it was obviously really sad right and Michael Ball I'm not kidding he replied with oh yes this morning as I walked my two dogs <laughs> this morning as I walked my two dogs I thought I'm so grateful for the dogs this man had phoned up to talk about the fact that his dog had passed away and we had to then hear Michael actual ball talking about yes well that's one I I know what you mean because I've got two dogs and today I walked them and today I enjoyed that walk and I thought oh I'm so grateful for these dogs so I know how you feel and I thought Michael <laughs> You need some mental health first aid training. Yeah. Like just, just like actually, you know, just like hold that space. I'm that that must be really difficult. You know, you can even be like that must be really difficult. I've got two dogs, and I know, gosh, I know how much that might may hurt me. Like you know, but it was just that, that emotional space. You know, it's really important, but sometimes it comes from an awkwardness or I don't know. It doesn't always come from a bad place. But again, isn't it? We have to fill gaps. And, and this book that I was reading about, You're Not Listening, I read it because I thought I'm a crap listener. And, and that was one of the things they'd observed. Um, they'd observed educational psychologists working with um, parents and children. And um, it was the more silent that the educational psychologists were, got the highest scores because they actually could demonstrate true listening. So they didn't jump to a solution. They didn't jump to advice. They didn't jump to judgment. They just sat with that feeling. It's something I struggle with greatly. Um, I'm definitely a speaker um, and I'm, I, I need to practice it. But I thought, God, how powerful that, that must feel for someone to hold the weight of a feeling rather than try to do something, um, solve it or interfere in it. So sorry i've not got loads of children outside i love children but yeah a bit of noise pollution <laughs> no it's fine no it's really powerful isn't it and um i think it's given us lots to kind of consider and take away and kind of mull over but um i've really enjoyed talking with you again today and yeah, I, hope I hope that other people have found it helpful useful and interesting too we'd really like it if you can kind of reach out and let us know your thoughts and feelings and ideas on what we've talked about and if anyone's got any future ideas on things they'd like us to kind of talk about um i think that would be uh, good too don't you think yes yeah thank you for inviting me on again i really enjoy it it's um, it's like therapy i was about to say that it's like a little mini therapy session for both of us isn't it it's wonderful it definitely is. thanks a lot kerry 
No worries. Bye.